Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Sam and Gareth have something very different for you this week. They did two separate conversations, one with uh, Queen's University's Professor Colin Harvey and another with Let's Talk Loyalism's More Holmes and they decided to put them out simultaneously. It's not a both sides thing, it's not a, you know, oh let's cover all our bases, it's none of that. The lads just thought, we'll put them out together, let everybody listen, hear the arguments as, as Colin will put forward for Ireland's future. And then listen to more argue for a better union, a stronger union, or vice versa. You can listen in whatever order you want to. But I think personally, the lads should be applauded for their work, the effort they've put in, and how they've built Shrapnel into this wonderful platform that's open to these voices and conversations that, let's face it, you don't hear enough of. On a personal level, I'm delighted to work with the lads. I'm delighted the Tortoise Shack hosts the podcast. And it's brilliant to see so many people are listening, liking, sharing, commenting, you know, giving us uh, feedback and negative and positive. And if you're one of those and you like what the lads are doing, please help us keep the show on the road. Click the link at the top of the podcast. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is the price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone to you. To us, it's mics on, bills paid, and, and it helps to keep conversations like the two you're going to get to listen to now keep happening. Thanks for the support, for liking, for sharing. Give the lads a five-star review wherever you're you're listening to this now. And do us a favor, take the 30 seconds to click the link and join us. It's really, really simple. It's really straightforward. You get tons of additional content, including the most recent Shrapnel conversation with Claire Mitchell, the author of The Ghost Limb. It's, that's already available now for our members on patreon.com forward slash tortoise I am shutting up now. Enjoy the two podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm your host for tonight, Sam McElveen, of course. Uh, and beside me, well, metaphorically speaking, is my other co-host, Gareth Mulvenna. How are you doing, Gareth? Yeah, not too bad, Sam. Good good to see you again. It's been, um, yeah, last night and tonight, so it's two nights in a row. Yeah, 12 Except last 20. night you were at my gate. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, we'll not go into that. The restraining order is still in place. We'll not say anything to anybody. Yeah, um, okay. But yeah, less than 23 hours, and here we are again talking about shrapnel and ready to talk to our next guest. Um, people will have different opinions of this gentleman, and I use the word gentleman because I think he is. Um, people can disagree with him all they want, but that's not how I see him. So tonight we have Professor Colin Harvey. Um, he's from the School of Law at Queen's University in Belfast, and he's a human rights academic. Hello, Colin. How are you? Hello, Sam. How are you? And hello, Gareth. Really appreciate the, the invitation. And look forward to the discussion. Time. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for taking time, Colin. It's good to uh, meet, albeit virtually. Yeah, no, it's great, great to discuss. And I suppose uh, we should just put it out there now that me and Colin have met for a coffee. Absolutely. Uh, and neither of us combusted. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Sh- showing that we can have mature conversations <laughs> from different points of view and not get sort of adversarial about it. Um, Indeed. And I suppose that's. That's going to be one of the things that's going to be sort of levied at us in the next couple of weeks when this pod goes live is why, why, why talk to you? And as I said before, why not? It's, it, these are the conversations that we need to be having for all different reasons. I mean, you, you have planted your flag firmly where you believe this conversation is going to go. And I mean, the conversation around the constitution, um, I think we need to challenge that on a respectful level. And I also need 
I think we need to know the background of everything that's going on. We we need to know what what stage we're at here. It can't be just be rhetoric online. It can't just be throwing sort of comments at each other. So, Colin, um, I suppose the first question is, how's the planning going? Well, thank you very much, Sam. And again, just to reiterate, really appreciate the the opportunity to to discuss. Just maybe take a few steps back in terms of the the discussion. Both a starting point for what we're talking about is a fairly basic point that often is widely accepted in rhetoric, but then when it's pushed a bit further as challenged in that people here uh, have a choice about the constitutional future. And, you know, we wake up every morning and somebody will be making a plea about respecting the principle of consent. So in a sense, what we're talking about this evening is people being asked the constitutional question. And as you said, I've I've made my view around that fairly clear. I'm an academic, but I'm also involved in civil society organisations such as Ireland's Future, and I've made the case and I've been clear about that. And I think that's important as well, you know, that people feel comfortable, whether they're pro-unity or pro-union, to articulate their views out loud, you know, because I think that's an important part of what, where it's going next. I suppose to, to answer your your question, I think it's really commendable, right, that in the circumstances of this society, that it's being conducted in the language of rather dull managerialism. And what I mean by that is that the sort of repetitive language used is around planning and preparing for constitutional change. And I think that's deliberate. I think it's deliberate because people wherever they are in this argument, really want to do it right. They want to get it right. They don't want a referendum tomorrow morning. They want the planning to be done in advance. And they want people to know what it is they're voting for or against. And I want to stop for a moment in the circumstances of our society and just applaud everybody for, in a sense, taking that uh, framework as a starting point, because I think it is rather... Uh, remarkable uh, in context. In terms of the planning itself, I suppose my view on this is that a lot of work is being done, but I wonder about whether there's adequate public awareness of work that's been done, mainly because a lot of it's happening in universities. And sometimes I think some of that research uh, isn't articulated beyond at the university context. Like we talked before we started this about the Arons project and the work that that's producing. And it's, you know, it's regularly now producing quite detailed academic research papers on some of these questions. But I suppose my starting point is this. I could get together with others at Queen's, right? And I am literally housed in the main site tower at Queen's. We were having coffee in the Junction Cafe, right? And in the in a in that tower, we could sit down in a room well, with a group of others and draft a new constitution for a new Ireland, do all the planning work, and then present it to the world. But I think ultimately that isn't the right way to do it. Yeah, it, it would be relatively easy to do. And I think what's also notable is that the focus is on involving people. And listening, what is it that people want? We all tonight could sit and write a blueprint for the future in terms of our differing perspectives. But 
it wouldn't be right for us to do that because it's important that people are involved. So I think what's key to the planning process, yes, is the Irish government taking a clearer position, but actually civic dialogue being central to where we go next. And I think it's very, very notable that a lot of the proposals for the next steps from Ireland's future and others are all about all-island civic dialogue, of how you can get people together to talk about the sort of a New Ireland, United Ireland, the sort of change project that they they want to see. And my sense is now that's where this is going very clearly next. And you can see in some of the language, even the language that Leo Varadkar used last week around the island being on a path to unification, that if, if we're not there yet, we're heading in that direction. There's a recognition that we're entering a new phase in the discussion. So my sense is a lot of work has been done. There is a job to do in making sure there's a a full public understanding of that. Uh, But we're heading into the next phase and you'll understandably know that a lot of focus in the next phase is on the Irish government and the work that it's prepared to do in this space. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, Colin, because we taught the Eilish Rooney about this and you mentioned there about conversations happening in universities and maybe not translating into the wider sort of public discourse. And Coming from an academic background myself, I know how important it is to transfer the findings to the people on the ground because that's ultimately where the change happens. Uh, and Eilish talked about you know cross community dialogue, particularly between women's groups, and she talked about the use of flashcards to promote dialogue. But the one thing we taught the Eilish about, and it's it's maybe something I'd like to to put to you as well. I mean, you've talked in the past about. Um, about the hostility um, to the debate about the constitutional future within sections of unionism and loyalism, that it can't become a permanent sort of block to progress in the, the argument and the conversation. So to, to that extent, have there been any m- attempts made by Ireland's future to engage loyalists, even even at a grassroots level? I, I don't mean on, in terms of the big events that are being staged, but in terms of grassroots engagement? I suppose I would... widen it all all out uh, in response to that and just caveat what I said earlier about university work because one of the things I notice about Northern Ireland right, is that um, you have the sort of big ticket public narratives around what's happening and then we often find ourselves sitting just a bit like we talk about Sam, sitting having cups of coffee and tea together, talking and in the last few years, I have found myself on, on almost a constant basis having cups of coffee and tea with small U unionists and small L forever loyalists and others in conversations. They're not open lights. Often these are, are private discussions. And my sense is that, and I know that, that these discussions are, are happening in a way that is respectful and sensitive on all sides, actually. So sometimes the the public noise, and I think we know this, uh, disguises the fact that discussions are actually happening. Your, your question is a great one because it also highlights the difference between you know, rhetoric and reality. Like I've gone to Ireland's Future events with people, and sometimes I don't like the labels, but from a you know unionist background, are on panels are engaging. Uh, Ireland's Future had a specific event that was widely watched 
in relation to this, the Ulster Hall event that I spoke at last year had a specific panel around of that. And my sense that all, of all the groups working on the constitutional change side are are trying to to reach out and to do that. But I suppose a final point I would make is that people often talk about respect, right? So, and part of respect is recognizing. I completely get why, for example, some people might not want to be in a conversation about designing United Ireland. And people will rightly say, hold on a minute, that's your job. You know, you get over, why do you want me to? And I think, you know, constitutional change advocates do need to make sure the invitation is there, right? And people have availed of that. And I think the evidence is there clearly that people have and in civic society do. But also recognise that for many people, that's a step too far, particularly if we're heading into something that looks like a campaign, right? Uh, and respect that, respect people's rights sometimes not to engage in these discussions, but make sure the door is always open to have a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, whatever, to sit down and talk of where things are. My sense at the moment is, um, you know, and you might say, I might say this, but Nobody I have met in the constitutional change side of the argument wants to repeat the past in any way at all. Um, And there is really a strong desire to listen, right? Whether that's looking at what uh, university research around opinion polling and focus groups and surveys are telling us about what people might want, even if it's not the outcome that they, they, they want in terms of the future. And trying to facilitate quiet discussions to listen because finding out really in the process of designing the proposals, what would make people comfortable in any new arrangements, even if they don't vote for it, right? So not that, you know, what would make it more acceptable and trying to hardwire those in to any proposals that that, that emerge in the, the, the far far end of it in the spirit of wanting to get this right. So as you'll have noticed from my last few answers, uh, I don't give yes, no answers because I think also the debate is more complicated than that. But I do think conversations are happening. I do think, look, I know difficult conversations. I've been in private, difficult, interesting conversations over the last few years. So what I would say is sometimes the public noise, the headlines, the social media stuff doesn't reflect what's actually happening. And sometimes those discussions need to be private and they need to be listening discussions because um, some of the public stuff isn't very helpful to people. And also just to end um it may or may not, you know, too helpful to say this. I'm acutely conscious, right, that I'm on the constitutional change side of the argument. Whatever happens to me, whatever rubbish I get thrown in my direction, I know I have a group of people there who will stand in solidarity with me around the position I've taken. But for people in the unionist loyalist community who step into this space, it can be dangerous space to step into, right? Because... I, and I've heard the stories about what happens to people who engage with me or us or the constitutional change side argument and the implications for families, communities or others. And I can tell you this, I and others are acutely conscious of that, of not of 
not putting anybody in a difficult position because I, I know that whatever position I take, I have got, if you like, that community of solidarity around the constitutional change position. But for people who are stepping out of, you know, traditional communal boundaries here, that's a tough, tough ask. So I think constructing conversations on all sides that allow people to enter safely, I think is also important. Yeah, I mean, I, I stated at the beginning of this, we've met for a coffee and it's, 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 it's telling people that we can go into those conversations and come away still intact as such. You haven't, I haven't been infected by the, the 32 county mentality <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm out waving a green flag. You know, it, I, I can go in and we can have a respectful conversation yeah. and I can walk away still being 100% loyalist and still constitutionally set in, in the determination that I'm going to make. But we can at least have that conversation. I think some of the stuff on, especially on Twitter, um, or X, uh, can get quite right, sort of, yeah, it can get quite vitriolic. But some of the underlying questions are actually spot on. It's just how they're asked. So when people from my community ask questions along the lines of, well, what about ban parades? Because at the minute, we're seeing nothing accepting of our ban parade and our, our culture with that. People can argue about what the culture is at later date, but at the minute, it's in there. It's a, it, it belongs in our community, and we, we, we do this. But we're seeing things like that. The cold house of the city council in Belfast now, the erection of a stone storm. And all those things are, are playing into the psyche of the questions being asked. So if we can't be accommodated at the minute as a, as a community, how, how do you expect to then convince us that we'd be accommodated after reunification in, in your eyes? How, how would that play out for, for the people who are sitting at home? And I'm, and I'm playing English because... There's people out there who use nice big words uh, and it confuses and they depend on other people to interpret that for them. But what they get is opinion on that and not fact on it sometimes. So how how would you reassure young Billy or, or young Mabel on the Shankill Road or Sandy Road tonight that within 32 counties, the loyalist community will be protected, but also encouraged to grow? Well, well a start, starting point, Ray Sam, is... is is listening to the arguments and the perspectives around what people need to see in any proposals about accommodation in the here and now in the future. Like I would be somebody who, you know, argues very strongly for generosity in terms of anything that emerges. But l- let me put it like l- like this: you know, nobody should be relying on the words of Colin Harvey or civic society groups. Uh, what matters is that some of these your reassurances and guarantees are hardwired into the legal system and what emerges next, then you can do something about it. So you're, you're not relying on saying, oh, hold on a minute, ex-politician told me in a meeting that this would happen, that it's actually reflected in the new constitutional arrangements of the legal system and whatever emerges next. So is that if it isn't respected, you can do something about it in law. You don't have to rely on warm words or rhetoric before any referendum campaign. I think that'll be uh, actually increasingly as I go on in this, the most challenged part of our island will be the South, right? Because I think that we have done a lot, although on the, in the North we've all hurt each other in, in very, very horrendous ways, um, we've done a lot of heavy lifting in terms of accommodation in the here and now. And, and we've had to work out how we try and share this space. And we haven't always done it successfully. 
But I think for the South, some of what we're talking about is going to be very challenging indeed. And that's evidenced in some of the polling that's been done and some of the survey work as well. So that's why I think having these conversations and facing into them. But what I would say to you know Sam, Gareth, whoever's listening to, to this, is that don't rely. We should know by now not to rely. We've been through Brexit <laughs> and after Brexit. Don't rely on the the warm words of politicians. Uh, make sure that what we're talking about and whatever accommodations are made are there in law and can be enforced if they need to be. You don't want to go there, but if needs be, those things are written into any constitutional arrangements or legal arrangements. And what I would say is that, you know, even if you vote against constitutional change, that your rights will be upheld on the far far end of it, um, not through political rhetoric, but through courts through tribunals through uh, legal mechanisms look my, my own view is and you know, I am an academic I look at the evidence that that's there you know people in loyalist communities who are marginalized and socioeconomic socially economically deprived will be better off in a different arrangement in a new arrangement um, it's clear to me that what's emerging in the here and now and the proposals that are being developed, we live in a fairer society, whether we vote change or, or against change. And I think the reassurance comes not again from politics, but from guarantees and protections that are meaningfully hardwired into the new arrangements and enforceable as well. I think, yeah, that's really important, Colin, because obviously Sam is speaking from a loyalist perspective. I'm the sort of devil's advocate here because I'm not a loyalist or a unionist, so I look in from the outside, having researched that community. I thought I was the devil in this conversation, Karen. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm well established. I'm not from the loyalist unionist community. I'm the opposite, in fact. Um, North, North Belfast, Antrim Road. Yeah. So, um, but no, I've just I've re- researched loyalism for a long time. But there is that perception that you know because you research something. I mean, you've probably found that yourself, you know, because of people you stand beside, people you associate with, people think you're automatically, you know, part of that group. It's not the case, but, you know, that's the, the life of an academic, isn't it? And sort of you're, you're bedeviled by people's perceptions. But I suppose the the point I'm trying to make, um, you've, you've hit upon a really important point there, because it's not about relying on politicians and, and empty promises. It's about getting this t- t- tightened up by legislation in preparation for any constitutional change and getting it enshrined in that constitution. So for me, it goes back, and again, I'm going to reference one of our recent um, uh, guests, John Barry. I've already referenced Eileen Shrooney. So John made a really good point, and it's something that's always frustrated me when I talk to loyalists, who you know people I've got a lot of empathy for and done a lot of work with, but it's that constant perception that human rights and obviously this is something very close to your heart the idea of human rights and human rights for all loyalists seem to conflate that language of human rights with republicanism now republicanism obviously has used human rights to do its advantage and that's completely legitimate but human rights and human rights is, should be a basic universal framework for everybody everyone should have their basic human rights and i think we need to recalibrate the conversation so that loyalists are aware that if we're going down this route, if there is going to be constitutional change, and I've talked recently, uh, particularly um, with Sam and on this podcast, how I'm coming round to the idea of, of a new Ireland. I think it's probably, you know, the wind's blowing in that direction. 
I have less to lose. I have nothing to lose from, from that change because I don't have any political identity tied up in any change. It would it would be a pretty easy transition for me, given my background. But I do see people I know, people I've become friendly with, people like Sam, but also people who are still very much in the, in, in the mindset of, we will be persecuted. And, and you made a really good point because you said, we don't want to make you know the mistakes of history. We don't want to repeat history. So it won't be like turning things on their head. But no matter how much you talk to people in the loyalist community, there is always that fear. This will be the chance to get revenge for what our forefathers did. So that's one of the fears. But also, I'd like you to talk a wee bit about how we can persuade people that human rights isn't just tied up with the political ideology. It's a universal thing. It's a, it's a great question, Gareth. The, the clue is in the title, right? Human rights. They, they belong to everyone. And again, don't need to rely on Colin Harvey or anybody else saying that. They're there in law. People can read the doc- documents, the protections that are there. You know, the, the Human Rights Act that the, the Tories have been relentlessly trying to repeal and, and, and haven't so far succeeded. You know, they protect everyone in this, this society, those rights. But I've actually been, you know, I've, I've actually been engaged with loyalism in the past around this precise point and my argument has been that uh, loyalist communities should be at the front line of using social and economic rights to achieve uh, social change and social justice and should be rather than than abandoning the language of rights should be using it much more proactively particularly as issues around socioeconomic disadvantage are at the heart of of, of, of of when you listen to a lot of the concerns in loyalist communities, which, you know, are the concerns of, 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 of disadvantaged communities across uh, uh, this society. Um, they're really about socioeconomic rights. So, you know, my, my argument would be around using the language of rights, not abandoning it, because rights, human rights, it doesn't belong to any. Just because a particular person uses... Uh, human rights law doesn't mean it, it's owned by any one community here, but also on issues of culture and identity, which are, again are protected in human rights frameworks. It's becoming familiar with those and, and, and using those those frameworks as well. So it's, and I think that there is evidence that people, for example, around the Human Rights Act have made use of it well across the society, but you're right like back in the day when I was on the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission this, and we were involved in drafting the Bill of Rights advice, this was a constant issue to, 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 to try to, to, to overcome. Um, my response would be to, there's a tool there to use that can help all communities here. Why would you not want to use it? And I think it's, it's, it's embracing it, making use of it, engaging with the statutory bodies that are there, to help people here as well, uh, to, to make use of the tools that are there in rights terms to advance, you know, the the needs and rights of individuals and communities here. Yeah, we're talking about the fears that are within the loyalist community. The, the, the other one that I hear quite often is, if we have, say, 2025 was the referendum and unionism got its wish and we stayed within the UK, it's they were lucky that day. And it's like the old sort of saying that we have to be lucky every day. And they would say that the Republicans only have to be lucky once because there's no reversal of this referendum. And I think that's an issue as well. This playing into the psyche of this is doomsday because 
the, the unity, the, the, the Ireland's future and, and Think 32, they can afford to lose one or two referendums and keep going. But unionism can't afford to lose one because there's no way to reverse this afterwards. So I think what you're going to see is it's not going to be it's not going to be the debate like an election. It, this is going to be a debate where it's it's a, it's a zero win game for for us. We have to we have to win to maintain what we have. We're not going to be any better off for it because the pressure is still going to be there for the next referendum and the next referendum and the next referendum. So how do we go about discussing this that we can remove that fear as well? Because I know you're not going to say that's a one-off referendum because that goes against the, the sort of grain as such. But it's it's a case of loyalism and unionism feel their backs are against the wall, and it's going to be constant pressure. And that pressure is going to it's going to it will have a kickback at some point. Hopefully, that's a political kickback, and I'll say that loud now. Um, that's the way this needs to be handled. But it, it's it's another pressure that's on the community. So we we know about the social deprivation we know about the fears of losing the nhs and all that other stuff and not and the fear of not knowing what's coming as well but the other fear as i said is this constant pressure that okay if we lose in 2027 or 2029 or 2030 whenever it happens is it another five years we've got to do this again because what we're going to have is a deeply divided society constantly on the boil because if it's going to be a constant campaign here of referenda after referenda then we're going to have issues. Um, how do we go about diffusing that in society? I suppose the starting point, Sam, is, is recognising that when people talk about the principle of consent, uh, explaining what that means, essentially the principle of consent means that this place, its future is determined by the choice of people who live here. And that, that that's the reality of the principle that people want respected and so ultimately you know maybe slightly naive hope around aspects of the agreement is that would encourage discussions around persuasion in other words my option is the better option for these reasons so you know what i would say is that you know we're still at the earliest 20 there isn't going to be a referendum in 2025 and people are talking about 2030 as a potential so and what that means i think is that there'll be a fairly long lead-in time to any discussion. I my own view is neither side will adopt a status quo position in those uh in the referendum when it comes. What I mean by that is the, on the, the and the pro union side has thinking to do on this as to what the best arguments are for the union. You know, it it would be hard for anyone to listen to this to think that we're we're currently living the dream in the union of peoples at the moment because we're in a sort of seismic dysfunctional mess really on on you know on league table after league table this place is is really really struggling so i think the pro union side of the argument needs to think about well what is the case and who's best to make that case and it's the same with the constitutional change argument as well as to what that will be. So I think there'll be a fairly long lead-in time to any referendum. I think the the spirit of, well, I know the spirit of the moment is essentially there's a sense that around 2030, we may be close to the sort of indicators, all indicating that this thing will, will have to happen. So rather do the work on all sides in advance. And, you know, you would like to think 
and this this is going to sound incredibly naive, Sam, in terms of what you just asked, but that the 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 weight of emphasis in the years ahead will be on persuasion because ultimately it'll be people in that sort of don't knows category that will need to be persuaded and and to be frank they'll be put off by some of the you know on a, any side of this debate the more sort of extremist noises that you hear in the discussion ain't going to persuade people in yeah. in the middle of this argument that don't knows to to go along so I'm a sort of Again, in the de-escalate the language, explain to people what it means to live in Northern Ireland constitutionally. Sometimes I don't think that is articulated enough. You know, when a politician does talk about the principle of consent, just explaining what that is, we we are, we we live with uncertainty here. That's that's hardwired into our constitutional arrangements. Um, that's simply you know a, a reality. And for the final point, you know, one of the most useful things. You know, even for me in recent years, is there's a lot of emerging comparative research about what's happening north and south, uh, being done by the ESRI and others. Really credible, reliable research, and in every area, whether it's welfare, health, employment, uh, you know, life expectancy, even some of the myths around healthcare. Uh, myths are falling, you know, and if anything, I also hope that that we use the time before any referendum to learn more about each other on the island, because one of the striking things is how little people know (laughs) about the other jurisdiction. So if we could approach it in that frame of mind, I I know that is unlikely, and there'll be people out there who trade off anxiety, fear and worry, trying to exploit anxieties, fears and worries. Those who want to see the conversation be about persuasion have a responsi- a leadership responsibility, dare I say, to, to make sure that that's the way this p- plays out. I mean, I, I, I think was, it's... it's yeah, sorry, yeah, Gareth, sorry, I, Sam, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, as a tax Gareth earlier on, and, and basically along the lines of the Tories make my argument harder every day. I, I'm I prepare to come on the pod <laughs> and discuss our constitutional position and the Tories throw another couple of grenades into the situation yeah. for me. But on the other side of that, we we work out of the, the tortoise shack and so the echo chamber and the guys in there we listen to a lot. And it's not a bed of roses down there either. You know, the homelessness situation, um the current situation with the far right and building gallows outside the, the houses of government. It, I know what you're saying about league tables, but there's a certain there's league tables down there to say that Ireland is in the top five richest countries in Europe, and then you look at that money that doesn't actually transfer to the people. It transfers out of the country again because it's been used, as I see, as a laundromat for big companies, a tax haven, if you will. So although it looks good on just, paper, you know, it, I suppose what I'm again, yeah, yeah, it's just it's just a case yeah, I, of it's not it's not always yeah. just about the league tables. Yeah, I do, and I don't in any way, you know, underestimate issues around identity and culture that people have that, that no economic argument will overcome. And, you know, I, just simply bringing evidence to the table about the realities of, you know, what the South is actually like and, and, and where there are advantages there in the here and now, then pointing those out, but also being open and honest about where there are problems in the, in the South as well. I suppose it comes back to an earlier point. My sense is that Neither side in the referendum campaign will adopt status quo arguments. What I mean by that is, I think, you know, on the smart pro-union arguments will be arguing for change and smart pro-unity arguments will also be arguing for change as well in terms of what they're proposing. 
because certainly, like you've said it, Sam, you know, the situation in Northern Ireland at the moment um, is a tough sell, you know, um, after Brexit, what's happened and all of that. Um, that. That's a tough sell. So, you know, one of the things that's underexplored, I think, in the current conversation is that, you know, how is the pro-union side of this going to operate? How's that argument going to work? You know, who are the, the faces we're going to see fronting that up? What are some of the arguments going to be? And my sense will be they won't just be, there you go. <laughs> the current union state is the ideal. Uh, th- there'll also be change arguments there as well. I think, you know, it's really interesting, Colin, because as a historian, I, one of the things that always strikes me about unionism, and I've talked to Sam about this, and you see it happening time and time again, is that any sort of attempt at reproachment, any attempt at growth or progress within unionism is strangled at birth. And it's that, you know, we had a joke about it before we started, but the idea of the Lundy. So anyone, and you made a really good point earlier, I've talked about it similarly when I'm talking about loyalists who sort of even try and share their stories about the past. There is no support network, really. You can advocate for constitutional change. You know you're part of a bigger movement in terms of the people who are having that conversation. You feel supported despite, you know, the 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 abuse that you've suffered. And, you know, um, whereas unionism, you've seen it with, like, say, D- Doug Beatty, for example, would maybe make some sort of moves towards trying to attract maybe Catholics to vote for the Unionist Party. And we'll go back to Terence O'Neill. You know, people, I suppose, overestimate what his... Um, appeal was. I mean, I think he was really sort of um, off the old school, but, you know, he was trying to move with the times to a certain extent in terms of industry and um, getting Catholics involved in the sort of, you know, I mean, it's, it's insane when you look back, you know, trying to integrate Catholics into the workplace. I mean, even as, as a Catholic talking about, you know, my my family potentially in, in that re- recent history, but O'Neill got shot down um, Doug Beatty gets shot down. Any sort of liberal unionism gets shot down. So it's, and I mean, it reminds me of something David Irvine said to me years ago about unionists going to the negotiating table and always coming back having overplayed their hand, and that leads to diminishing returns. So Sam made a really good point there about, okay, we can have this referendum. It might not work out in favour of constitutional change now, but. You know, we'll keep doing it, keep doing it, and eventually it probably will happen. That's the likely outcome. Whereas unionism has this diminishing return because, in my mind, and again, playing devil's advocate, there is no attempt to change the conversation. There is no attempt to throw in new ideas. And you've made a really good point there. I mean, there has to be new ideas brought to the table. If you want to win the argument, you have to appeal to people outside your base. And I don't really see that happening within unionism. But I don't know whether it is because the conversations and the ideas aren't there or whether it's because they're being strangled at the outset. So, I mean, it'd be interested to hear what you think and what, um, also what Sam thinks about that. Um, Gareth, it's, it's, I suppose it's, it's, it's a difficult one for, for me in a sense to, to, to comment on. And, but, but watching some of the discussions, again, just to reiterate that sort of sensitivity and consciousness for people who enter this space and the implications for them of of doing that does have an impact on the way some of the discussions are conducted. I suppose, you know, when everything is constructed as an existential threat, you know, 
not everything is an existential threat. You know, I just recall, you know, the actor Jimmy Nesbitt standing up, you know, through the arena last year talking about a new union of Ireland and, and the creative language that's emerging around what the future might might look like. Um, and the sense that, like, it'll sound odd and this, you know, loyalist communities will will be better off in a range of ways uh, in a new union of Ireland or whatever you want to call it. In fact, I would say some of the rights that we're talking about this evening will be more clearly and robustly guaranteed in those arrangements as a matter of law, right? That doesn't, and people will listen to that and think, that's Colin Harvey, he's delusional. But um, because I think, you know, th there are, and, and I've engaged people in loyalist communities who have, to be candid, have, have very little in common with some of the politicians who stand up and talk about existential threats to, you know, and have much more in common with marginalised and disadvantaged and vulnerable communities across the island, you know, who, who I also want to see benefit from what we're talking about uh, as well. So I suppose ultimately, just to my mind, you know, from a pro-change argument, the sort of configuration of unionism at the moment, you know, isn't going to win a effort. Like I am, again, this will sound to many people listening slightly delusional. My sense is when this comes around towards the end of this decade, when you think of who will be gathered around the pro-change argument on the island, um, I think that the pro-change argument stands a very, very good chance of winning in Northern Ireland that referendum. And certainly, if the current configuration of unionism stays as it is in terms of the way, that may work with the sort of 30% who are unpersuadable or whatever that percentage is. But is that going to work for the don't knows and the people who are open to, to the argument? So I think unionism, it's not for me to tell, or unionism and loyalism what to do, but just as a matter of basic strategy, you know, if the focus is on the don't knows, you know, is the current language, is the current approach that seems to be the dominant one within unionism really going to work when this comes around? I think sort of first response to yourself, Colin, yeah. I think uh, Nicola and the SNP had the same optimism as well going into the last referendum yeah. and it didn't work out too well for them. So there is there is movement there that sometimes... Sometimes the status quo, although it looks stale and not moving, it, it does hold st steady as such. But going going for what Gar said, yeah, it, it takes it takes a certain skill to be able to talk openly like this with yourself about this subject and navigate navigate away from being traitorous to your own community, but yet still still have the respect and this sort of friendliness to have this discussion on on air and record it and held for everybody to hear. Um, it does, it means I calculate my words very carefully sometimes because you, you can't say certain things. I mean, you've upset everybody tonight. I mean, you've upset the loyalists here going to listen to this. You've upset the ones in the South here going to listen to this because you've called them both out so far. So uh, I'll be I'll be second in the hate list for this one. Is that progress? I don't know. Uh, well, it, it keeps the focus off me. It'll do. Um, but, but there are discussions taking place. That, and I know there are about a more positive frame off of the argument from from unionism. I know there are people out there who are genuinely trying to look at this through a positive light and how not how we defend the union, but it's how we promote the union. Because that's the thing I think with Ben Gareth especially spoke about this before. I mean good good old loyalist slogans are unionist slogans of no surrender, never, never, never. 
it's all negative language. And the word defend is the same. It's we need to be looking at sort of the more positive language around this. What are we selling and why are we selling it? Um and it, I, I applaud the guys who are willing to have the conversation. They're being shot down, but they're coming back with it and fair play them. I mean, I'm not a huge Doug supporter. I'm not a huge anybody supporter. Gareth, I'll tell you, I throw it about because yeah. some of the stuff Doug says is good. Yeah. Other stuff, it, it, it takes me to the fair and vice versa. I mean, some of the stuff that other commentators come out with is brilliant. And then they go further and you sort of think you need to shut up 20 characters ago there. Um, but we, we have to have this discussion within unionism. People have contacted me after our previous pod and said, where do we, when do we start these talks, Sam? When are these conversations going to start happening within our community? And my answer is, I don't know. I'm hoping through what I'm doing at the minute, it's going to provoke enough people to start the conversation. Whether they like what I'm saying or not, if it makes them angry and they want to start talking or it makes them emboldened to come out and be able to speak their own mind, I'm happy enough. But they've got to start having these conversations. It's not enough It's not enough for my community to bury their head in the sand and say it's, not, it's just going to go away. It's not... So we need to look at ways how we convince people from the other community as such that they're better off where they are, that we're going to support them, that the mistakes of the past, if you want, won't be repeated, that we're we're all in this together and we're going to make sure that our children and our children's children have a better future within the United Kingdom and not within a 32-county state. And I think that's where Gareth is looking as well. He's basing his decision on his child. And that's how we should be doing this. So I need I need to go back to my community and I'm challenging them now. Start the conversation. Start telling us how my child and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren are going to be better within the UK and give them something to turn out for. Because that's the other thing, the lack of people turning out within loyalist communities at election time. That needs to be addressed. They need to find out why they're not turning out. And I can tell you now, it's probably down to the negative messaging that's always out there. People don't get turned on by negative language. They get turned on by positive sort of reinforcement and going out and having something to cheer for. And I think that's where where I'm throwing the challenge out to loyalism and unionism. It's time we, we got the conversation going. It's time we made it positive and it's time we give something something for our people to come out and vote for. I suppose that, again, it connects to the, you know, you hear people talk about making Northern Ireland work, but don't, don't really see much evidence of that in in practice, you know. And, and to a lot of people, sometimes when you look at, Particularly, you know, the main unionist party at the moment, the like, there's a worry that you know this, the sense is that what happened last year in terms of the election, you know, almost that people when the system doesn't work, you know, as it was supposedly, you know, people just won't play ball anymore, you know, and I think that's a a concern. But I suppose, although it's been um, you know denied, there is a suspicion that it seems as if people just won't won't live with Michelle O'Neill as a first first minister, you know, and it's. That, that, although the arguments around the the Windsor framework, you know, there's there's that, you know, lingering sense. I think particularly with the Nationals and Republicans here about, you know, what's actually go, going going on in 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 this uh, society at the moment. But I suppose the discussion is turning to one thing is timetables. So it's interesting. Even at the moment, people are talking about 2030 as a possible date for a referendum. And I wonder whether, like Sam, you've talked about how do you get people engaged. Well, one way to get people engaged is if they think this is game on, if you like, that this is really going to happen. And that was very noticeable in Scotland, that once you had a time frame, uh, really people started to get their act together, you know, around 
working out, you know, this is going to happen. We need the best possible arguments and the best people making those arguments uh, out there. And my sense is that's where the the constitutional change side is heading towards thinking about a timetable. Then the other thing is, if there is an all-island civic initiative established, will people participate in that? Now, I'm conscious, of course, political unionism is not going to engage prior to referendum. But the interesting question to my mind is is whether people in a civic context, small unionists, loyalists, will be willing to engage in some form of all-island civic initiative. Certainly that's been the case in the past, whether that'll happen um, in, in the future. But I do think timelines, um, and there's a debate about that, they do focus minds, you know, they really do make think, and, and particularly if you're sitting on the status quo position, right? So, you know, Northern Ireland's in the union, nothing's eminently changing, you know, it looks like a mess for all extended purposes at the moment, but, but you know, we don't need to do anything. If, you know, there there were to be a clearer timetable if people thought that 2030 notion was more than just sort of something plucked out of the air would that would that help now again people will say what <laughs> putting a date on it would help but i do think there's a risk still here as wild as this will sound of us stumbling into this thing you know that um you know this idea that things just all go seamlessly smoothly according to a bureaucratic plan uh, doesn't pay much heed to the way, for example, British governments <laughs> react and, and and treat this place his- historically. You know, so I think getting ready now. So really, just agreeing, Sam, with what you're you're saying. You know, the, people thinking about also, you know, what are the best arguments? Um, you know, what is likely to persuade that don't don't know. Um, because people, you know, there's a comfort in talking, preaching to the choir all the time. You know, that's really because, you know, preaching to your own audience, that's all great. You'll get a round of applause and you walk off the stage. But often that doesn't shift the dial at all for the don't know. So I think a lot of attention is going to turn in the years ahead on pro-union and pro-unicide to what, what would make the don't knows in the argument change. But also, I have to say, on the constitutional change side, um, and just for people listening to this tonight, that th- there is really anxious, careful thought being given to what would reassure people who don't want this outcome, right? So w- what what do people who will vote against the United Ireland need to be in place to feel comfortable with an outcome that they may not agree with, right? And I know from conversations I've had and I'm having and work that is ongoing that really careful thought has been given to exactly that question. So, you know, if people want to join conversations privately, discuss, articulate, um, there's an open door to that because... I'm telling you now, uh, people want to get this right. That's a dominant mode of the discussion. That's why there's so much talk of planning and preparing properly in advance of not doing this next week, getting it right. Because 
I know, we know, this is a post-conflict society. You know, we know what we've all been through. We, we, you know, I was born in 1970, lived, lived through the 70s and 80s. I can tell you, nobody in the conversations that I'm involved in wants to go back to any of that. And that's why listening, engaging with people who may not support the outcome, but but people like me want to know what will make you feel safe, secure and reassured and whatever happens next. I going to throw a curveball in here it's just something that occurred to me tonight colin and it's not a question per se for you but you might be able to give an insight into to, to a possible answer um we'll talk a lot tonight about unionism having to evolve or, or eventually perish in in this sort of ongoing context but does a new ireland lead to a situation where the ideology of irish republicanism as we currently understand it becomes redundant and what i mean is what I want to know are, are there debates taking place within republicanism, political republicanism, about a possible process of evolving and adapting the potential new social and political challenges of a new Ireland? Um, I'm going to answer for myself only yeah. in terms of this stuff. That's okay, uh, yeah. Because uh, I really don't speak, uh, you know, beyond myself in this discussion this evening. Of course, really. yeah. Um, and it, it reflects, I'm saying that for this reason, right? Because... I suspect, like yourselves, I am absolutely fed up with sort of caricature, stereotype, and monolith. Loyalism mm. is not a monolith. Unionism is mm. not a monolith. National republicanism. Th- these are not monolithic conversations. There, th- there are complexity and nuance in all the positions in this discussion. And I am, frankly, fed up with the sort of shock jock approach to, to, to the discussions that take place. And I'll tell you why. Because... Um, the New Ireland, but I take very seriously, right? I, I, I want people who talk about transformation, I will hold them to that. I've spent my entire life working for equality and human rights, social justice. And when people use the language of a New Ireland and transformation, um, I want them to mean it. But also at the far end of it, I'm going to hold them to it as well. And I know many, many others are. Because A, we need to find a new language for the conversation that we're having now. Um, But what emerges afterwards, I want to be genuinely transformational and transformative. Um, Some of the old labels, some of the old caricatures, some of the old arguments need to fall away. Um, If we're serious about a new Ireland, if we're serious about where we're going next, you know, I want to see the arguments in relation to climate change front and centre of those discussions. I want to see arguments around the way women and children have been treated across the island of Ireland for too long, appallingly, at the centre of those arguments. But for me, the big issue for me is socioeconomic inequality across the island of people who are getting left behind, being left behind by the peace process, left behind by the warm wars of the Good Friday Agreement, being failed in the south and north. If, if, if people's lives don't change tangibly, I'll be holding people to account. You know, their children in poverty across the island of Ireland tonight, their children, uh, you know, their lives, the script chapter of their lives, the script of their life is written because of the postcode and where they're born. Uh, if that doesn't change, you know, I want to know why in the far end of it. Those conversations are happening. None of these discussions are monoliths. And my view is the most interesting discussions are actually not going to happen between constitutional change arguments and pro-union arguments. They're going to be within each discussion. Because you have everything within each, within the pro-union camp, 
you have radical left positions, you have conservative positions and right positions, same on the constitutional change argument. To my mind, the question is this, who wins in each of those camps? What does Irish history tell us about who wins those arguments? And if we're interested in transformation, whether you're for the union, for Irish unity, I want the transformers to win, right? Because I mean it when I say persuasion. I want to hear the best arguments about transforming where we are now prevail. And I'm on the change side of that. I want to see the best possible. We have lessons from Irish history, right? You know, the revolutions in the past in Ireland that promised transformative change, you know, morphed into quite conservative, problematic entities. Uh, how do we make sure that doesn't happen again if Ireland changes again? So that's, as you will know from all my answers tonight, it's not a yes, no answer. But my position is, when I use New Ireland, I mean it. Not just, you know, for the purposes of a referendum campaign, but for afterwards. You know, I, I'm in, I, I, I've spent my life working for that. So, yes, those discussions are happening. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what, the phase that certainly the constitutional change conversation is moving to is towards something that looks like a program for a new Ireland down the road, right? Whatever you want to call it, a prospectus, a manifesto. Um, so what gets in that document and whatever the equivalent document is on the pro-union side. But I can tell you this that if you're interested in social change or social justice or climate change, whatever, if you stand on the sidelines of these constitutional debates, your arguments, uh, you know, will they be front and centre of those documents when they emerge? So I very, very strongly believe, and I know there's a chill factor on all sides, that people do need to enter the space, people who believe in transformative change, whether they're for the Union or they're for United Ireland, because if they don't, the parameters get frozen quite quite quickly. And on the change side, I think we're moving into that space. So I urge people to, you know, if you want to see a new Ireland, then you have to become involved. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose the point I was trying to make, and you, you made the point about the shock jocks, and as you know, that's we're there to provide the alternative, and I hope we do. It's I'm not referring to your good selves, of course. Oh, no, I know, know, I know, I, I, I know that. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely, I didn't. No, and that's why, I mean, I think myself and Sam have come to sort of a comfortable place. We're not people who like to take credit, but I think we have come to a place recently where we do realise that, yeah, we have to take some of the plaudits that people give us that we're providing the space here to have a good conversation and it's respectful and, you know, we're looking at um, all sides of the, the coin. But to me, that's what I'm interested in because obviously with the conflict here and the and the centuries of conflict really, if we link it back to, you know, colonialism and that type of thing, it's always been adversarial ideologies and that's what a lot of it's been based upon. But now we're seeing these you talk about climate change. I mean, climate change is it's not going to sort of respect uh, political difference in terms of ideology. We all have to roll behind this and sort of do what we can to mitigate for the future. So that's what I'm interested in. If you're arguing for the union, if you're arguing for a new Ireland and your sort of ideology is founded upon those overarching themes, you know, how do you adapt when you do get the outcome that you want? And for me, that's what I want to know more about. And you've answered it to a certain extent. And it's something I I think I'd like to extend the conversation to other people who are involved in, you know, broad Republican politics and the constitutional conversation and nationalist politics about, you know, how do, you, how do you reconfigure this political ideology to suit the re real politic that will emerge on the other side? 
it's just me thinking out loud, but I think we do have to sort of plan plan for those sort of scenarios. And what it's a, it's, a, it's a good question, Gareth, as well, because whatever happens won't be a one-off. You know, it won't be voting in a referendum and then everybody, you know, a new Ireland, if you're serious about that, will be a process. You know, the, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll also want to put things in place, constitutional otherwise, that, that allow the arguments to continue. Um, there'll be new challenges that emerge as well over time. And you want to make sure that whatever's put in place allows space for that to happen. But, um, you know, I, I, that idea, and I know it's sort of a cliche now about process, not an event. I think there's a lot of truth in that, 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 you know, New Ireland transformative work, social justice work, uh, climate justice work, you know, it, it's just, you can't, you have to be ever vigilant, right? You know, we've seen today, we've seen at the moment arguments that I thought had been won years ago in human rights and equality terms. They come back, you're constantly fighting the same arguments time and time again for people's rights. And that will be the same if things change constitutionally as well. But I do worry because of the circumstances of the North, Northern Ireland, because of the chill factor, that people who are involved in progressive social, civic work are nervous about entering these discussions. And that worries me because if proposals begin to emerge without, you know, those voices shaping them, you know, that, that worries me. And, and like, your audience will know what I mean. There is still a chill factor around having these discussions. If you speak to community groups and civil society groups, you know, people will quietly say, oh, we don't really go into politics or whatever. And you're trying to, the constitutional arguments are seen as off the table. But if people stay out of that space, I worry about the sort of conversation it will then become. You know, So, so we do need to create a safe space for whether you're on the pro-union side or pro-unity side, you can bring your best arguments and, and people to the to the table and into that space to, to make the case and shape the proposals. Yeah. Colin, it's been highly interesting talking to you again, um, and I'm sure we'll have a coffee in the near future. Yeah, no, I hope I haven't put you off there in terms of, but it would be know. great to continue the discussion, you know. Listen, I, I didn't expect anything different in your answers tonight than what I got. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those ones that you expect to hear something from me and I expect to hear something from you. We're not we're not going to change in those positions, but at least we can have a discussion about it. And I think that's the important bit. I, I think this idea that because I'm a loyalist and I can't talk to you because you're talking about 32 counties and that's that's against my my very being. So therefore, I talking to you, I'll burst into flames or something along those lines. It's, it's a, we can have these chats. We can have these talks and conversations. I think what you're talking about is lawyers get involved maybe at, at the sort of planning level of this and they'll say why why would Turkey's plan for Christmas? You know, it's why why would we why would we help in the process of creating what we don't want to happen? And I understand that your argument would be because if you have the voice in it, what what is gonna come as you see it eventually, at least well you'll be have you'll have a voice in it. You'll have had planning in there i can see both sides of the argument i'm pragmatic enough to do that um and as i said last week on the pod unionism needs to plan how to defend this how to how to promote our union how do we stay within the united kingdom but it also has to plan for the inevitable the, the other option it has to work out how it's going to represent its people in a different 
constitution in a different system and how how those people who need a voice, they may not like it, they may not want to do it, but Sinn Féin have done it for years. They've had to work within the British system to ensure that their, their constituents have had representation. Unionism is going to have to do the same. It's not something that I want to see happen. But it's going to have to be in, in the background there. How do we work the system to ensure that the people in my area are looked after and they have protection of rights and they have income that they require and they have a future and they're allowed to, to flourish within this system? Again, it's not something they want to see, but it's something I think you need to plan for. I mean, I, I believe Churchill had a, a plan for a British resistance had the Nazis invaded. This is the guy who's telling people to fight in the beaches and everything else. He, yeah. He never said it in public, but at least he had the foresight to have things in place in case of. And I think that's where we need to be as well as a community that we we don't want this to happen. But in case it does, this is how we're going to be able to work within this system to our advantage. I think those conversations need to happen. And I think it's connected to that really is, is also just making sure nobody is, is working off caricature, stereotype and assumptions about what people want. Because one of the things I notice about the discussions on all sides is that when you actually speak to people, you know, they don't necessarily want some of the things, even some of the representatives are saying they, they do want, you know, like what's struck me so far in a lot of researches, how much on all sides healthcare, for example, matters more to people than, than many than many other things. So it's making sure that, that no assumptions are be, being made. But I suppose, again, reiterate two things. One, one thing is the openness to private discussion. You know, n- none of this has to be open lights in terms of the offer being there to, to listen to, 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 to private discussions to shape that sort of space as well. But it's if slight or any reassurance can be given, it's just to reiterate the point about people wanting to get it right, of wanting to make sure that any plans that are made are shaped by, you know, what would make people feel comfortable in new new arrangements. And I do, and people might listen to this, might say, I would say this anyway. My experience of the discussion so far, and, and I've been in a lot of the civic spaces and political spaces around this, is there's a genuine sense of doing things differently so as we don't repeat uh, mistakes of the past. And some of the best discussions are often the civic discussions and conversations like this. Well, Colin, I think we're going to release you back into the wild again. I think we've taken up enough of your time here. You can go back to your back rooms and your dark rooms and plan our downfall again. We'll leave you alone to get all your Machiavellian plans there. Planning um, for your success. And, you know, I think one of, the, one of the things is, like, just to push that a bit f- further, Sam and Gar, you know, it's, it's a sense that with, in new arrangements, you know, everybody has an interest in, in people working to make a success of what emerges. So, you know, in, in ideally, what I would like to see is unionist and loyalist communities and new arrangements working for their success, not just tolerating, not just surviving or managing, but being part of something genuinely different and working to make a success of it. Let's remember, as many, many unionists and loyalists had to do in the South, in terms of the new arrangements there and play, playing a part in that successful society that, 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 that we see t- today. So that would be the hope, as naive and delusional as it may sound to many. <laughs> <laughs> well, Colin, thank you very much for your time. Thank um, you so much. 
I would like to say it's been a pleasure, but it hasn't. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go back to berating you online with one of my sock puppet accounts. Um, <laughs> please don't. Please don't. <laughs> Colin, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, thank you, Colin. Garth.